when we think about racism as only limited to a few individuals, we actually miss the broader dimensions of race and racism. So, for example, systemic racism that's embedded in our institutions. Our institutions are built uh, primarily by white people to serve the interests of white people. That's how they were founded and how they perpetuate uh, their sense of privilege. So, for example, in institutional racism, one in three black men will go to prison in their lifetime in this country and therefore won't be able to vote, won't be able to be eligible for certain work and benefits and other rights as a citizen. It's what one author called the new Jim Crow, where a whole uh, swathe population generation of um, primarily black men are disenfranchised. Or the fact that 40% of African Americans live below the poverty line. The systemic reasons for that. White people of color, um, people of color make up 30% of the United's population. They account for 60% of those incarcerated. While African Americans comprise 14% of regular drug users, they comprise 37% of those arrested for drug offenses. So, and of course, I could list a long list of things that point to the systemic nature of our racial bias institutionally. We can see it in everyday ways. You maybe see it in, in the ways that you relate to uh, other people of color as you go through your day, as you make choices when interviewing people or choosing where to live or who to socialize with or whatever. So a friend of mine, as we were talking about this in England, um, she was recounting a story. She was in New York with an African-American friend of hers um, and they were out going out for dinner, went onto the street to hail a cab, and the two of them are standing there. She's Asian-American, he's African-American, and all these cabs are going by, empty. And she's hailing them, and they're just going by. And she's like, what's up with this? Like, like a three or four or five cabs have passed us, and none of them are stopping. And he looks at her, and he laughs. And he says, take a look here. I'm a tall, black, African-American man, and taxis don't stop. It's just part of living in New York. A friend of mine who's an African-American meditation teacher, he was telling me about a time he was driving in Massachusetts and um, going along in the fast lane of a two-lane highway. And... Um, he was in a line of cars going over the speed limit, six or seven cars over the speed limit. And he sees a police car up ahead, but he figures, well, we're all in the world. He's following the speed of traffic and uh, didn't do anything. 
And then he looks in his windscreen and in his wing mirror, in his mirror, and he sees the cop car coming out. And eventually, in through this weave of line of traffic, he pulls my friend over. He's the only African American driver in this long chain of people speeding, and he's the one who gets pulled over. So I remember when I was living in London and I had an Afro-Caribbean girlfriend and um, we would mostly take public transport North London. And she would talk about how when she was alone, also with me, but also mostly when she was alone, that she was always vigilant, waiting for the next person to say something, to spit, to do something offensive. Like there was a permanent state of vigilance, which I, as a white male, had no awareness of because that's not my experience because as a white male, I'm not subject to that kind of discrimination. And it was shocking to me to realize that was her reality, that she had to live with that, with that ongoing experience. As a white man... I have the privilege of not being aware of that and not needing to be aware of that for my own survival because it's not coming at, my, coming at me. So I want to show a video around stereotyping um, that is sort of painted humorously, but it's really, of course, not very humorous. The train Ah, that's very sweet, but that's not what I was intending to play. So again, just notice what happens as you watch this. Hi there. Hi. Nice day, huh? Yeah, finally, right? Where are you from? Your English is perfect. San Diego. We speak English there. Oh, uh, no. Uh, <clears throat> where are you from? Well, I was born in Orange County, but I never actually lived there. Uh, I mean before that. Before I was born. Yeah, like, well, where are your people from? Well, my great-grandma was from Seoul. Korean. I knew it. I was like, she's either Japanese or Korean. But I was leaning more towards Korean. Amazing. Yeah. I'm Shasina. There's a really good teriyaki barbecue place near my apartment. So I actually really like kimchi. Cool. What about you? Where are you from? San Francisco. But where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm just American. Really? You're Native American? No, uh, just regular American. Oh, well, uh, I guess my grandparents are from England. Oh, well... Hello, Governor! What's all this then? Top of the morning to you. Let's go, Sporty, Sporty! Double, double, toil and trouble! 
Find a gap! Beware, Jack the Ripper! Bloody hell! Pip pip! Cheerio! I think your people's fish and chips are amazing. <laughs> You're weird. Really? I'm weird? Must be a crane thing. Get some lights, Mark. So, of course, racism is just one dimension of discrimination, and uh, it's mostly what I want to focus on tonight. But, of course, there are innumerable ways that we discriminate. Gender, age, sexual orientation. Someone was telling me the other day, she showed up at a retreat center. And the manager, and this is often done very innocently but naively, the, the person registering for the retreat said to this woman, uh, are you alone or did you come with your husband? And the woman's like, um, no, <laughs> I didn't come with my husband. I don't have a husband. I'm in a same-sex relationship, actually. So very innocent. But when we live with these what's called heteronormative views, there's an assumption that everybody's like us. And because of that assumption, because of that uh, ignorance, you know, we can cause a lot of um, misunderstanding, uh, a sense of um, exclusion. And that's the mild end of that, leading to the stigma and discrimination and, and homophobia and hate crimes and all of that. So and I mentioned that story about registering because um, Spirit Rock, Buddhism, Insight Meditation, also an institution, also founded primarily by upper-middle-class white liberals. And um, as innocent as that may have been, also because of that, the, the teaching body and the founders of an organization generally reflect those who come. And so what we have in the community is primarily an, a middle-class white uh, um, community. Not entirely, by any means. We have and all of the blindness that that entails. So and that's why as an organization, we're uh, doing a lot of work to uh, understand and to see where we're blind, to see where we're unconscious, which is many places. And even me giving this talk, 
as as a as a as a response to bringing this into into consciousness more, I will also do it in a way that's probably unskillful, because I'm also learning as a white male how to do this more skillfully. But I'm also willing to take the risk in the hope I don't obviously offend anybody, but also to learn, because this is this is what's most needed needed is that we educate ourselves and that we learn about that which is unseen and unconscious. So I now hear this, I've heard this over the years for the last 15 or more years I've been teaching of um, people from a particular minority, from a person of color or a transgender person comes to a retreat and then perhaps... Uh, one of a few people uh, of color, say, and often feel at times um, uncomfortable or wondering, is this really uh, a community for me? And am I welcome here? And it's very painful to hear that. And, I, and, I, and I've seen... Many people of color come and stay for a while and leave, and I never see them again for that reason or other reasons. So, and as I say, it's not about shaming and blaming. It's about can we become more conscious? Can we wake up to this aspect of our experience as we wake up to every other aspect of our experience? I think of mindfulness practice as bearing witness, bearing witness to life, bearing witness to suffering. And this is one of the, one of the deepest streams of suffering, certainly in this culture, that still is like a festering wound that doesn't go away because it's not really addressed. I was listening to a conversation about what happened in, in Germany after the war. Um, and one of the things that, that the government did after some years, uh, aside from apologize and repatriation and um, uh, many things that have yet to happen in this country, including an apology for slavery. So how do we not go to sleep? How do we cultivate a compassionate response to this suffering? Because the suffering in the world, the suffering in ourselves, what's being called is a compassionate, appropriate response. However imperfectly we may respond. So as I mentioned earlier, if you're, um, for example, as myself, a white Anglo-Saxon male, cisgendered, as in have the same sexual uh, identity as my physical, sexual, physical sex, able-bodied, right? there's lots of privilege I have that I don't even notice because society is more organized around... Uh, 
white privilege. You may not like that term, but society is organized in that way, certainly in Western, in Western culture. So I want to just read a few things just to bring that to light. Because we may say, well, you know, I'm a good person, I'm a good practitioner, I'm not racist. But we also have to see where we're unconscious and see also how we participate in, in a society and institutions that are also inherently uh, discriminatory. So I'm going to read some statements. Um, this is uh, from an article uh, on white privilege by, uh, his name I forget, I don't think I wrote it down, Robin D'Angelo. No, that's sorry. It's not by that person. Anyhow, I'm going to re- just read some reflections about white privilege and just to see what, what, what happens as you, as you hear these. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. So white privilege means this experience of that I'm going to read all these various experiences would not necessarily be the same for a person of color as an example or someone from the LGBTQ community or a transgender person. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown people of my color made it what it is. I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. I can remain oblivious of the language and customs of persons of color who constitute the world's majority without feeling in my without feeling in my culture any penalty for such oblivion. I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. If a traffic cop pulls me over, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys, and children's magazines featuring people of my race. So these are things, so privilege means um, we don't see it. So we don't even notice those things because we live in a culture that's reflective of our own color, our own cultural values. Thank you. So, and unless we see the privilege then we uh, perpetuate the privilege. So, what is the Dharma response to this very deep, very complex issue? I remember when I, I used to work at, I still do work at a, this wonderful retreat center in New Mexico called Vallecitos Mountain Refuge. 
and it was uh, founded by um, two amazing activists, environmental activists and uh, uh, Chicana activists. Um, and it was dedicated to integrating mindfulness practices for um, uh, social environmental activists. Um, and they had a commitment to having 50% participation for people of color, which was very radical in the Dharma community in the 90s. It was kind of ahead of its day. And um, so I'd work with these amazing activists of color from all around the world, particularly from inner cities in Chicago and Detroit and Philadelphia and the South, and I was kind of a gung-ho meditator and meditation teacher sort of aspirant, you could say. And, um, and I was also very clueless about race and racism here because it's very different. It's similar but very different that, uh, than in England. And, um, and I expressed my desire to want to share meditation and to work uh, with communities of color and underserved communities. I was raised working class, so I have a particular orientation to um, uh, supporting those uh, uh, underprivileged classes. And, um, and they said, well, we don't think you're the best person to teach uh, our communities back home. And of course, I was naive. So I said, well, why not? And they said, well, you're kind of, well, you're a white male. And, you know, it just, it just feels like, you know, more colonialism and um, kind of oppressive, actually. Um, and won't be received so well. And uh, I was a little perplexed because not really understanding the complexity of the issue and how that could be a reiteration of a certain form of colonialism, for example. And over the years, having studied um, in various ways uh, around racism and unlearning racism, um, I've come to understand what they were talking about. It took me a while to, to understand. And one of the things I hear most, particularly from uh, activists of color, is the importance for white people to do our work, to look at our own unconscious racism and bias, and to not expect people of color to educate us about our own racism, but to actually do that work uh, with other white people and educate ourselves around our own unconsciousness and biases. So at Spirit Rock, we had a um, uh, we have an ongoing initiative. We we did a three day training for all levels of the organization, board, teachers, and staff. Um, we've done it actually several times over the years. We had one recently. Uh, looking at uh, institutional racism, and um, you know, always difficult, always painful, always hard, and always tremendously 
uh, invaluable to do that. So I think um, for those of us in positions of privilege, and you may not feel like you have privilege, but if you have white skin, if you're a male, if you're straight, if you're able-bodied, if you're young, you have a certain kind of privilege. And so it's imperative for us to do our work. To study, to learn, to educate. I think the education is a doorway to empathy. It's a doorway to understanding. Mindfulness is a doorway to empathy because as we understand our own inner experience, it allows us the capacity to understand another's. Perhaps never fully, but we can intimate, we can sense into our own suffering and therefore empathize with the suffering of others. We can look at our own organizations and see and ask, how does my organization represent or perpetuate uh, discrimination? and bias, and unconscious racism? Does my uh, organization or its staff or its uh, um, uh, executive, its, its, uh, its management reflect the um, ethnicity of the community that it's in or it's serving? What resources do the power holders hold and how do those resources get distributed according to privilege? Another important uh, piece of this work is to speak up when we see uh, and hear people uh, being racist. You know, I just spent some time with my family at home and uh, friends and um, you know, and as I travel around, you know, there's a lot of ways that people will um, be subtly racist without even knowing it. And as someone who's who's conscious, the the the, the importance of being an ally and to speak up, to point that out again, not to shame or blame, but to 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 uh, help each other wake up. So, some of you may be thinking, you know, I just came here to meditate, you know, and, you know, just kind of get away from the, the, the conventions for a while, you know. And this guy droning on about race and racism. Can we not talk about love and light and beauty and, you know? Well, we could, and that's okay, and I like to do that a lot. But, you know, as I, as I, the reason I explored those questions at the beginning, what is Dharma practice? What is awakening? What is appropriate response? It has, as, as Helga pointed out, the Eightfold Path is about how we integrate our practice into every aspect of our life, into our work, into our communication, into our relationships, into our actions, into our ethics. And that, of course, involves the dimensionality of, of bias and discrimination and all the ways that our conditioning uh, acts out. 
I was talking to a friend of mine who works with young children in in a city. I think it was in London. Very diverse uh, neighborhood. Young kids under five years old. And they don't see race. They don't see race. They just they're just playing. Until they're conditioned to see race by their family, by wherever it gets drummed into them. And then those racist values and discriminations and biases and hatreds start. But we're not born with that. Race is not the the, the very fact of what the concept of race is a conventional reality that was made up in the 16th century in this country. The the, the notion of whiteness and blackness was invented in the 16th and 17th century primarily as a support for uh, economic uh, interests uh, to um, both... Um, uh, support the slave trade and um, to justify um, uh, invasion and cultural dominance and genocide, etc. It's a ma- it's a made up notion in the 16th century, and you can read the history books. It's a fascinating study of how the idea of whiteness was invented, and back then. Whiteness didn't mean skin color. White meant Anglo-English dis- English speakers. English speakers from English descent. So if you were Irish, you weren't white. If you were Jewish, you weren't white. If you were Polish, you weren't white. If you were Italian, you weren't white. And that notion of whiteness and who's white and who's not changes over the centuries, which shows that it's, it's a purely a conventional term that has no inherent reality to it. There's no genetic basis for, uh, for race. It's a sort of remarkable thing to reflect on, that it's a socially constructed phenomenon to support the vested interests at the time that have maintained themselves through institutions for hundreds of years. So, and as we head into this circus of election cycle, where this issue is on the forefront around immigration, around border issues, around walls, around terrorism and Islamophobia and all of that stuff, and it's important to also be bring mindfulness to this this lens, to this this awareness of how race is used, how racism gets perpetuated out of fear. And to bring, you know, as Dharma practitioners, to bring as much wisdom and as kindness and clarity to this issue in ourselves, in our communities, in our workplaces, with our children. Um, Otherwise, we keep perpetuating the cycle of suffering, which is what we're uprooting.
So does anybody have any... Um, we have a few minutes for discussion. So does anybody have any reflections, questions, comments? Yes, sir. Oh, no, you're, just, you're, just, you're a mic runner. Okay. Questions, comments, observations? You've got the mic. Thank you. When you watch a video like that with blatant, it's so blatant it's easy to see. If we're, you made the comment that we, the so-called whites, need to educate ourselves, if, it's, if our discrimination or racism is so subtle that we don't even know it, how can we possibly educate ourselves? Yeah. Well, um, there are many great resources and trainings and teachers and... Um, well, there are many ways to educate yourself. There's many organizations. Um, and so I would just, you know, seek out, you know, things like, you know, unlearning, undoing racism, unlearning white racism uh, to organizations that come to mind. Um, yeah, so there's there's many resources that I just invite you to to explore. I don't have a list of. Unfortunately, I would have would have been hooved me to have done that. Um, so, but yeah, there are many groups, organizations that are having these kind of conversations. So the reason I'm having this conversation is for that very reason, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I don't have at the tip of my tongue a list of organizations. Um, but there's plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of good literature. You know, having just read the new Jim Crow, wonderful book about how institutional racism is perpetuating itself. Um, there's, uh, the, 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 the article I was referencing was really useful called White Fragility, Exploring Issues of White Privilege. Um, there's an article. There's a whole compendium of reflections from Spirit Rock uh, and Dharma practitioners called. Um, oh boy, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a little. Uh, I'm not quite at the tip of my tongue, but I think if you look on the Spirit Rock website, we have some resources there. Um, so yeah. There's a, there's a lot available, anyway, but it requires some effort and some commitment to reading and to studying and to talking to others and two people, yeah? Comments, reflections? Any, mini, mini, mo? Okay. I, first of all, I want, I'm a person of color and I really want to thank you for this talk tonight. Mm. I, I've been living in Marin for 30 years and mm. I'm a highly educated person, but I have shied away from Spirit Rock, even though I've had a spiritual practice mm. most of my life, mm. except for a few occasions because of that very thing. Mm. Um, mm. But um, so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. Um, You're um, I wanted a, a couple of, even though people of color, yeah, feel the burden of having to educate, you know, white people. It is kind of burdensome to be seen as a person that 
that educates, but there are a lot of great books that are written, like like you said. Mm -hmm. Another, uh, a couple of uh, other books that come to mind are Tanahesi Coates, who got the National Book Award, Between the World and Me. That's a must-read if you're really interested. It's a great way to get an education in the privacy of your own mm. mind and heart. You know, you can contemplate what what he's saying mm. about his experience as a black man in America. Another one that was nominated for the National Book Award the prior year in poetry is a book by Claudia Rankine, R-A-N-K-I-N-E, called Citizen. And, um, and she's a woman who, it's a prose poem where she describes all the quote, microaggressions, the small ways as she walks through her life of experiencing the pain of discrimination. So those, those are really two good books, and a lot are being written. So I just wanted to offer those as Great, suggestions. thank you. And thank you so much for the efforts to make this a more uh, inclusive community. And I have to say, you know, Buddha was a man of color. He was. Buddha was a man of color, and Jack Cornfield got all of his education in Burma, you know, a lot of his education in Burma, sure. which is a land of brown people. Yep. So this tradition that we're following comes from people of color. So that's yep. interesting, yep. irony. You know? Yep, yep. So, so thank you. Thank yep. you all for being here. There's another book that just comes to mind um, by Angel Kyoto Williams, who's actually a Dharma teacher in the East Bay. She's a woman of color, African-American woman. And um, I forget what her book is called, but it's basically it's conversations between people of color about race. And it's actually, as far as I understand, uh, the, the intention was it was a book written for people of color about this issue which makes it particularly informative for uh, non-people of color to read and, and get a different lens into the conversation. Uh, Angel Kyoto Williams. It actually probably is in the bookstore. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd like to reiterate and thank you very much. <clears throat> I am not a person of color, um, but I did grow up in the, the South, the Deep South, um, during segregation um, from a Jewish family. And it was a very complex situation because I was often called a hook-nosed Jew. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the Jews often had the attitude, better them, the black, than us. So there was a whole very complex racial situation going on. And, of course, it forced me in a positive way to really look at racism look into racism. I mean, it's a very complex thing, of course, and there's, there are many parts to it. Um, but also, I've been an activist forever on social justice issues, and of course, racism is such an integral part of it. Um, I also taught up in Hunter's Point in San Francisco with, you know, with children that were deeply affected, the whole community, and can tell you that if you're a, a black person, you fear leaving your community. Even going outside of the ghetto, in which there's a lot of violence and crime, they feel, I, I mean, middle class white and black teachers feel very uncomfortable leaving the area for fear of being pulled over and being harassed. And so I've experienced a lot of it. Um, but what I want to specify right now is I've been very excited about the current black movement through, you know, Black Lives Matter. And what I've noticed, what they're trying to do, and I think it's very powerful, if they're trying to reframe what racism is or the impact on them. And what they're doing, I think, in my observation, is rather than calling it racism, what they want people to see 
it's white supremacy. Mm. That that is a lot what racism is. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have grown up, as you articulated, feeling that the white color or the white person is better, Mm -hmm. right? And and should be more powerful than black people. Mm -hmm. Um, And also they start using the term, especially black men, that people fear their black bodies. So when they see the color black, they're not seeing a human being in that body. They're seeing the color black. So we have basically gotten to the point, and again, it's very subtle, but I think if we all look inside of ourselves and really question how we feel for us compared to people of color, we might, it's a good investigation, Mm -hmm. as I'd like to say. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, so we're at at time. Um, I don't want to keep you beyond 9.15, but um, I appreciate your attention. And um, and uh, really invite you, um, particularly uh, um, us white folk in here, to do our work, to to do our, uh, our education and study and encouraging and supporting each other to wake up. Um, so, um, but you know, and the Dharma practice is for all of us to wake up in all the ways that we're unconscious. So. Thank you for your practice and attention. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.